Please stand for the reading of Scripture. The sermon text today is Proverbs 22, verse 4. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Amen. You may be seated. Will you allow me uh, to do just a little bit of introspection here at the beginning? I, I do need to admit that preaching a sermon on humility is is awkward and uncomfortable for me. Um, I feel a bit, a, a bit guilty, as I often do, teaching and preaching, uh, doing this. How can I preach such a, such a sermon? <laughs> um, I am admitting up front that in my honest my honesty that I am full of pride. I'm a proud man. But most of you already knew that anyway. And if you didn't, just ask my wife and my children. They'll confirm it. But to allow this admission to serve as some sort of disqualification for preaching the truth on this matter is ironically a very prideful thing to do. It is a kind of false humility and would only serve to further evidence my pridefulness. So I'm not going to go that route. As a mere man, I do not have the adequate credentials in humility that qualify me for the sake of calling this congregation to greater humility. But God himself carries those credentials. And as his minister, his under-shepherd to this Nacogdochean flock, I am not only ordained to this task, but I am obligated, constrained, compelled, required to preach this word to you. And yes, to myself as well. We are all guilty of hubris. So let us learn from the word of the master teacher together today and be edified and strengthened and encouraged by it. Everything the Lord commands, he also gives. And on terms of grace, it's all of grace. The theme of humility and openness and reasonableness and teachability is pervasive throughout the book of Proverbs. We saw some of that this morning in the Sunday school lesson. This book never stops begging us to keep learning, to keep growing, to keep maturing in wisdom and discernment. It completely eschews a passive approach to life. How can we grow in wisdom unless we are teachable? How can we mature unless we are open to change and willing to accept the revealed truth of God, to store it up, to pay careful attention to it, to cry out for it, to seek it out with greater intentionality, as Proverbs 2 taught us? That upward growth trajectory toward maturity and wisdom requires humility. We walk into church saying to our Lord and Savior and mentor Jesus Christ, we want newness of life, O God. And we're coming to you for it because only you can give it. We are open to you. We are listening to you. Show us your glory in greater measure. Take us further with you than we've ever gone before. That radical openness, that kind of openness, is humility. And he promises to honor that humility with readiness of heart, which is the fear of the Lord. The Bible is crystal clear on this matter. I'll throw out some verses here from Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, uh, verse 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Matthew 18, 4, whoever humbles himself, like this child, 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Ezekiel 21, 26. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. Isaiah 40, verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. This message is all over the Bible in many different ways and forms. It is basic to the ways of God. The irony is, pride humiliates us and humility honors us. Pride humiliates us and humility honors us. It's counterintuitive, but we have, I think, an intuitive understanding of this truth. Just think about it. When we see a person who is full of himself and is constantly drawing attention to himself, what do we feel inside as we watch that? Do we admire that trait in him? Do we hope our children grow up to be like that? Or do we want to cut him down to size? To see him put in, uh, be put in his place, even just a little bit? How satisfying it would be, because as onlookers, we recognize the ugliness of it. We see satisfaction, we play through in our mind how uh, the time when he falls will be such satisfaction to us. And we see his his uh, pride catch up to him. And he takes that great fall that we know is coming. We get satisfaction from that. Why? We already recognize that it's wrong. And when we see someone else who is humble and lifting others up with sincerity and doing diligent and faithful work without complaining or expecting any thanks and so forth, don't we desire to see that person get some credit for it? He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted even for us, but far more with God. We walk into a better future not through self-exaltation, but through humility before Christ. God blesses the humble because amazingly, God himself is humble. So what is humility? Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 22.4, our sermon text, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. The fear of the Lord is not the spirit of our times, in case you haven't noticed. Self-esteem, or something like it, seems to be the virtue of our day. I did a quick search on Amazon as I was preparing this sermon uh, for for books, particularly books, not just, you know, I've narrowed it down a little bit, just books. For books on self-esteem or uh, related concepts, um, I got over 50,000 hits. So many, they didn't give me the exact number, but over 50,000 search results. Needless to say, a search on uh, books about humility renders far fewer results. Now, I don't uh, intend to like make uh, turn this into a statistical argument. I know that this is a bad statistical argument, but I'm not using it as an argument. I just, I'm just saying that's consistent with the point I'm trying to make here. And that is, it's at least consistent with the fact that something like self-esteem is much highly, uh, more highly valued than humility. The conventional wisdom of our times is that self-regard is how we become well-adjusted and successful in this life. We've got to think about ourselves uh, rightly. But if you lack self-esteem, the world says, you are on the road to underachieving and 
worse, maybe even a life of crime. That's what we are told, we are told, but it isn't true. In her New York Times article entitled The Trouble with Self-Esteem, Lauren Slater, a number of years ago, quotes a researcher who studied criminals and concludes, and, she, and she, uh, that researcher concluded this, quote, the fact is we've put antisocial men through every self-esteem test we have and there's no evidence for the old psychodynamic concept that they, are, that they secretly feel bad about themselves. These men are racist or violent because they don't feel bad enough about themselves, end quote. In its teaching on humility, the Bible is not saying there is no place for a sense of personal worth. But the critical point is that it doesn't come first in moral priority. The book of Proverbs takes us to another place for the starting point of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it tells us. Almighty God is first, not the Almighty Self. He is our most urgent need and the key to our future life in Him. This is what the Bible is saying, and for us, it's an adjustment. Church musician Bob Coughlin said, quote, My sin is that my heart is pleased or troubled as things please or trouble me, without regard for Christ. My sin is that I'm pleased or troubled as things please or trouble me, without regard for Christ. End quote. This is a radical reorientation for us. When we start feeling the difference between self-esteem and Christ-esteem, that is when the idol of self is losing its grip and Christ is saving us. In a sense, it is the beginning of a whole new way of life. But if we are humble at all, we all have to wonder, am I humble enough? Am I doing this enough? Do I fear the Lord enough? Look at my lust for being noticed. Look at my lust for being recognized, for being liked, my self-pity, my melodramatic internal narrative that constantly plays in my mind, my grasping and clinging and calculating for more attention. If only I did fear the Lord. But here's the good news. We do not come to Christ because we are humble. We come to Christ because we are proud and He receives us and loves us and helps us in our pride, sometimes painfully. But he teaches us that the way up is the way first down. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the grace of the Lord is the beginning of the fear of the Lord. Jesus said in his parable of the wedding feast, See, I have prepared my dinner, and everything is ready, so come to the wedding feast, Matthew 22. And he did not say that we were ready to come. He said the feast is ready, So come to the feast. Don't worry if you're humble enough. You're not. Neither am I. But all of us can go to Christ and moment by moment, because He promises everyone who comes to Him will reach riches and honor and life in Him. Come to the feast and you will be humbled. Let your heart be melted by the glorious grace of Christ Because the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That is humility. All the humility you need to come to this feast. Do you want it? Why does humility matter? Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. 
The Hebrew word for fears in this proverb is different than it is in the phrase, the fear of the Lord. The word here is more intense, more narrow. It means to tremble, to shiver, to shake in your boots, so to speak. And then the beeline, whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity, shows us that fearing the Lord is the opposite of a hardness of heart. It is the opposite of a flippant, blasé, unserious heart. That's what will get you into calamity. But the irony here is that the word blessed, blessed is the one who fears the Lord, which is a happy, is a happy word. So we start with a happy word and end with a negative word. Blessed here is like uh, uh, a congratulations. It is a, a, a biblical high five. The term blessed is not declaring how people feel subjectively. Rather, it is making an objective statement about what God thinks of a person, what his status is in God's eyes. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. That is an objective declaration by God of this person. Blessed is a positive, blessing is a positive judgment in these contexts by God on the individual or the community that means to be approved of or to find approval with. So when God declares a blessing or that something is blessed, he approves it. Of course, there is no doubt that such blessing will bring feelings of happiness and that this objective blessing given to someone who is in the state of the fear of the Lord certainly will generate happiness and joy and the affective emotions that all come out of that. Blessedness is not simply a nice wish from God. It is a pronouncement of what we actually are before God if we exhibit the characteristic trait being described. In this case, the fear of the Lord. Uh, the Beatitudes have similar, uh, similar blessings. So blessedness indicates the smile of God upon us. Do you see the surprise then? The surprise is that meltdown before God is like a dam breaking with overflowing satisfaction. A pride meltdown before God when we see Him as He really is and therefore ourselves as we really are before Him sweeps away our internal barriers, the defensiveness that keeps God at a very manageable and controllable distance from us and makes us so selfish and downcast. But then... The gospel breaks through and floods us in divine forgiveness. And it's only then that we can really get past our image management, our curated, uh, our curated images, and we start to tremble before God in humility, which ultimately brings us deep happiness. There is no virtual substitute for this. This cannot be mediated electronically, only spiritually. Proverbs 15:33 The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 18:12 Before destruction a man's heart is haughty but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29:23 One's pride will bring him low but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. These three proverbs in one sense summarize the message of the whole Bible. Humility before honor The cross before the crown. It is both the message of the Bible and the pattern of our own lives as Christians. First, we take the courses and submit to the exams and all the rest. And then we graduate. 
It's just how life works, and it requires humility. Even God accepted this. The Apostle Peter read back through the entire Old Testament. Then he looked at the life of Jesus, and he saw this pattern. Uh, this pattern. If you read First uh, Peter, especially the first chapter, um, suffering, then glory. That's the theme. Suffering, then glory. That outlook became the template with which Peter saw everything in life. His entire first letter is embedded in this expectation. First humility, then honor. But we would rather skip the suffering, of course, and the humility and get right to the honor part. It doesn't work that way. So why accept this arrangement that God has established? Well, because it really is the only pathway to honor. And there is no other way. Our hearts long for what Peter calls praise and glory and honor, 1 Peter 1, 7. The Apostle Paul validates our desire for glory and honor and immortality. Who doesn't want that? Romans 2, 7. Everybody wants to write the next, in our own selfish ways, uh, the next you know, mega hit. We want to be the next superstar in one way or another, the next social media influencer or whatever it may be. Everybody wants their place on the Hollywood Walk of Fame or the Guinness Book of World Records, or whatever analog, uh, make up whatever analog fits the bill. Nobody wants to be a zero. For a person created in the divine image of Almighty God to be a zero is unbearable to us. And God Himself wants to honor us, but in the right way. Here's the climax of the Gospel. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Romans 8.30. That is not our proud overreaching. That is the grace of God. He is not out to make you mediocre. He's not out to keep you from having a bunch of fun. He's out to make you spectacularly glorious. But here's the surprising way He gets us there. He who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. This fraudulent world runs on swagger. And swagger alone. And it doesn't look like that is ever, ever going to change. But it will because God does have his own plans for this world and for you and me, for his church. Your life might not look like much right now in your own eyes, but don't worry about it. If you are in Christ, if you are trusting God for your significance, keep your eyes looking ahead at his promises on you. They're more glorious than anything the world promises you. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs 30, verse 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Proverbs 16, 2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Proverbs 14:12. Proverbs there is a way that seems right to a man, to a man, but its end is the way to death. The Hebrew word translated pride and haughty in these verses, particularly in uh, Proverbs 16:18, both have to do with height, uh, physical height, and being lifted up, being raised. The Bible says in the book of Daniel that the Most High God—that's the title given. To God, it certainly fits him. The Most High God gave King Nebuchadnezzar glory and majesty. The Bible had no problem with that man holding world domination. But then it says, when his heart was 
lifted up, when his heart became haughty, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down. Daniel 5, verse 20. The word translated destruction in uh, Proverbs sixteen eighteen, where it says, uh, and haughty, a haughty spirit goes before destruction. Um, it means a breaking, like a bone being shattered. Not just a, not just a tear, not just a single break, but a shattering. It's painful. It's destructive. And this is how it feels. It hurts when our egotistical dreams are broken and shattered by the truth of God's word, by the gospel, and our proud self-images are shattered before us. That's painful. But God is in it. God is working through that. So it is a healing blow. It's a healing blow. Here is a prayer that God will never refuse you. Lord, keep me in your humility. Keep me down low before you where I belong. Humility is the safest place for every one of us. One pastor admits, he says, quote, I find it good for me sometimes when I pray to get down on my face. Not just on my knees, down on my face, as low as I can get. It is contrary to my pride, but that's the lowest place where I belong before the Most High God. It is also the place of blessing. End quote. Maybe we should take up this practice for ourselves sometime. The Hebrew word for worship, shakah, literally means to prostrate oneself before God. It's a physical posture of humility. We need to be deliberate in our pursuit of humility. Because though we can easily detect pride in others, we do not naturally see pride in ourselves. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. Pride feels normal to us. We trust in our own minds. We feel innocent. We feel more sinned against than sinful. Like Shakespeare's King Lear. But what matters is not how we feel, but where we are going. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. These are the warnings of Scripture. The scariest thing about us is our glib self-assurance. So dangerous. We are not alarmed by our own sin. We are not shocked at our own pride. The on-ramps to the interstate of death have no warnings for us. No signs. There's no flashing red light saying, stop, don't go here. And we drive ignorantly on. We need to pay attention. Open your eyes. Study. Learn. Seek the Lord. One pastor tells a story about having lunch with a research psychiatrist at a major university. I think in his congregation, who was a member of his church. They were talking about the, the human brain. The scientists said our brains are basically simple, which is kind of different than what most we hear about the complexity of the human brain. This guy, who is a research scientist, uh, brain scientist at, uh, at a university, he says we're actually basically simple, even primitive. Our brains sense positives and tell us to move toward the positives. Our brains sense negatives and tell us to move away from the negatives. But as fallen beings, our wires get crossed. Our very brains lie to us in this way. Our brains sincerely experience negatives as positives. And we want more, and we go, go more toward them. And our brains sincerely experience positives as negatives when these wires get crossed, get crossed, and we want to move away from them. 
Another researcher arrives at this same assessment. He says, um, your unscrupulous brain, uh, quote, your unscrupulous brain is entirely undeserving of your confidence. (laughs) It's a good reminder for us. It has some shifty habits that leave the truth distorted and disguised. Your brain is vainglorious, says this scientist. It's emotional and immoral. It deludes you. It is pig-headed, secretive, and weak-willed. Oh, and it's also a bigot. Yes, thanks to the masquerading of an untrustworthy brain with a mind of its own, much of what you think you know is not quite as it seems. End quote. Wow, that's comforting. Uh, but we, don't, we, we realize that. Right? That's the description of us without Christ. That's where we are, and these are the, um, the sins we still uh, battle with. And how do we escape the pull of that? It seems overwhelming, maybe impossible. Well, we have nowhere to turn except to God himself and the instruction he gives us. We have to rely on that more than our own internal thought world. The Bible is a more reliable guide away from death and toward life than our own intuitions are. The Bible warns us away from death that feels like life and toward life that sometimes feels like death. We have to cultivate a capacity and an appetite for what is true and good and beautiful so that our instincts begin to match those virtues. We develop a taste for wisdom and humility. We begin to love it and crave it. The things we put in ourselves, the things we crave right now, some of those need to go. We need new taste. We need a palate change. We need to develop a taste for things that right now we don't have a taste for. They taste bland to us. We need, a, we need an appetite and a hunger for wisdom and humility. Which do you trust more, your hunches, your gut, Or the Bible, God's word to you. Humility before the word of God is really a matter of life and death. And that's why humility matters. It's not just to make you a better person. This is about destiny. And finally, how does humility behave? Whoever despises, uh, this Proverbs 13, 13. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. But he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Proverbs 15:31 the, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Proverbs 28:13 Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The three key words are reveres, listens and confesses here. That is how humility behaves. It reveres, it listens and it confesses in that order. First, humility reveres the Word of God, but pride despises it. This book is for my sanctification and for your sanctification, all of it. He will reward that humility with more and more and deeper understanding, and you will grow. And even if you don't grow in technical understanding or quote-unquote book knowledge, you will grow in wisdom. You will grow in wisdom. Second, humility listens to life-giving reproof. We have no obligation to pay attention to punitive abuse. We have no regard for that. But wise reproof is life-giving. Wise reproof is life-giving. Parents, remember that. 
Our work in the home can give life. Reproof is correction. We don't like being corrected, of course, but we need our feathers ruffled. It gives us life. We need that resistance to bump up to. When was the last time you said to someone you trust, please, will you help me see myself for who I really am? I am blinded to myself, and I need you to help me. How can I improve? Where am I going wrong? Can you tell me? Because I want to go right. If you are not in any relationship in your life where you trust anyone enough to open up like this and really listen, there's a reason. The reason is that you cannot find someone good enough for you. The reason is likely your own pride is keeping you from doing that. It's not that there are people out there don't love, who don't love you, don't want to help you, but humbly listening to trusted correction is essential to entering into the community of the wise. This is the beauty of what's in this room today. I need you to tell me where I'm going wrong. And you need me to do that for you. Third, and finally, humility confesses and forsakes sin. We would rather save face, of course, but it is so freeing to confess our sins, especially to one another. When we confess and we forsake our sins, we obtain mercy. The Hebrew term that is often translated mercy is related to the word for a mother's womb. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Why? Because God has a mother's heart for sinners who open up and come clean. God envelops us in His tenderness and warmth when we confess and forsake our sins in humility. It's the beauty of the love of God. Let's never confess one another's sins and create a shaming environment. We, we like to confess other people's sins for them, don't we? Let's confess our own sins. Let's never think as a church, thank God we're not like those other churches out there who get it all wrong. I wish they could see the light like we have. The Bible, in fact, has serious warnings for this kind of attitude. What arrogance is this? Let's confess our own sins. One of the most significant things I have ever read on this matter outside the Bible comes from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards has a way of, I can't understand half of what he's written. He's so brilliant. But he gets me. He sometimes, Edwards just gets me. His thoughts on revival as he was writing on the, uh, the Great Awakening and trying to figure out what was going on with all this massive, uh, this m- massive revivalism across America. He's trying to, trying to figure out how religious affection and theology and all this came together. One of his great works, uh, Religious Affections, came out of that. Um, but his thoughts on revival really strike at the heart of, of, of pride. And I see myself all over this. Maybe you will too. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says here. Spirit, quote, spiritual pride tends to speak of other person's sins with bitterness or with laughter and an air of content. Uh, contempt. excuse me, An air of contempt. Other people's sins. But pure Christian humility, rather, tends either to be silent about these problems or to speak of them with grief and pity. Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others but a humble Christian is most guarded about himself. He is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The proud person is apt to find fault with other believers, that they are low in grace, that they tend to, they're they're real, real quick to note their deficiencies. 
But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts at all. He is apt to esteem others better than himself. End quote. Ouch. So where do we find humility? Philippians 2, 6 through 11. You know this, the great Christ hymn. Though Christ Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. C.S. Lewis wrote that pride is, quote, the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is anti-God. It's opposite God. Here we see why. Humility began in heaven. We did not invent it. The Son of God revealed it. We lift ourselves up. The Son of God stepped down. Nothing is too good for us. Nothing was too low for the Son of God. We make ourselves big deals. The Son of God made himself nothing. We measure out our obedience one inch at a time to keep control. The Son of God became obedient to the point of death. The tally sheets were thrown away. Even death on a cross for you and for me. And this humble God loves us proud sinners remarkably. He even wants to share his glory with us and on terms of his grace. The only price we pay is the loss of a foolish ego. What a liberation we have. What a new step of self-humbling is God calling you to take as you follow his son this week. Whatever it is, he will honor you as you take that step. After humility, there is honor. After the cross comes a crown. God will keep his own way. So enter in. Come to the feast. Humble yourself before Christ today. Risk everything on God's faithful promise in him. He will be true to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. As we come to the table, let's reflect on um, how the fulfillment of the promises of the blessed life promised to us in the book of Proverbs and other, other scripture find their ultimate expression in what we are about to celebrate here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the way. We meditate on Him. He will defend us and not lose us. He will protect us and deliver us as long as we remain faithful. The wisdom of humility and the fear of the Lord that safeguards us is consummated in the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. Christ is the true wisdom of God. Yet the duties are still the same. And therefore we accept Him. We give attention to Him. We call out to Him and commit our life to Him. We work and we search and we seek to find the riches of wisdom and treasure in Him. And in return, we will have life and life more abundantly.
This is about destiny. It really is a matter of life and death. If the church is going to be a light to this confused and confusing world, then we need to get our thinking and living straight and square with the Word of God. Then we march in lockstep to the beat of godly wisdom, onward and forward from this place, back into the world with faithful living ever before the face of God, Coram Deo, in teaching our children, in loving our spouses, in doing our work, in loving our neighbors and, yes, our enemies, caring for the widows and the orphans, and raising the banner of Christ with honor, unashamed of His gospel, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So let us now celebrate with this glorious gospel here at the table together. Amen. O God, the supreme mover, may we always be subordinate to you, be dependent upon you, be found in the path that you walk, and where your spirit moves, may we be there. You do not move men like stones, but you endue them with life, not to enable them to move without you, but in submission to you, the first and great mover. O Lord, we are astonished at the difference between what we receive from you and what we deserve, between the state we are now in and our past state of gracelessness, between the heaven we are bound for and the hell we deserve. And who made the difference but you, O God? You are deserving of total and eternal praise. We join the company of the heavenly hosts and sing holy, 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 who was and is and is to come. To you be honor and glory both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen.